Elder care is expensive. Would you pay your kids to take care of you? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, August 11th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we welcome financial therapist Rick Kaler. We'll talk about the emotional complexities of working with your own family on home health care needs. We meet a South Dakota teenager who just returned from victory in Europe. Her sport, Junior Roller Derby. Plus the music of Humbletown and Cloverfold. The bands are performing as part of SDPB's Prairie Songs with shows in Sioux Falls, Rapid City, and Aberdeen coming up. We will gather the musicians around the microphones and hear a little music. That's coming up a bit later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The Depression and Dust Bowl era were tough times for many South Dakotans. Today, Irene Jordan of Faith is among only a few South Dakotans left who remember the drought, the dust, and the hunger. In June, she and her longtime friend Kathy Timmons sat down for a Dakota Life interview with Laura Rohde and Tim Davison. They bring you this story from Faith. Born in 1923 in a one-room log cabin northwest of Faith, on a homestead near North Flint Rock Creek, Irene Clausen Jordan knows the history of this area well, because for nearly a century, she has lived it. Throughout her life, she took the time to document the stories of the neighbors who settled in this remote ranch country. Native Americans, cowboys, wolfers, homesteaders, mothers, fathers, children. They were all our neighbors along North Flint Rock Creek. North Flint Rock never completely dried up during the drought. And those were neighbors who's going to remember them. I don't think there's anyone alive that remembers any of those people. The author of many short factual articles and books, including Matt the Wolfer, which gives an account of her father's life as an early cowboy and wolfer, Irene Jordan took it upon herself to document a group of homesteaders whose stories are often left untold. Women. Well... You see, in every old book, it's always Mr. and Mrs. John or Mr. and Mrs. Tom. Never even give their names. Her friend Kathy Timmons has read most of Irene's work and appreciates the time and care Irene took to document the lives of ranch women. I think of... You know, the people she has known and met and the work they have done and the things they have built. And her stories of the women in this country who have had their own contributions, which probably for the most part aren't terribly recognized. And she's right. Men's names are the first ones on a lot of things. But they wouldn't have stayed. They come through the country, but they don't plant the flowers, and they don't plant the trees, and they don't do the gardens, and they don't raise the babies that stay and make it a town or a state or a country. 
An avid scrapbooker throughout her life, she has filled volumes. Irene's first scrapbook was sewn by her older sister out of old grocery sacks. It was the Depression. Even today, Irene has vivid memories of the Depression. Lack of money, lack of grass. It was a real drought. The rhubarb and the asparagus are crab apple trees. Everything died off, and you were just afraid to use too much water that maybe your well would go dry. It was scary. She shared about Black Sunday and the fact that her family nearly starved to death. Tough times on the ranch meant she could not attend high school. Perhaps the saddest memory is the day when her dad asked her, to take his horses to town to sell because he could no longer afford to feed them. And Dad said, would you drive these horses to town for me? I was about 14, 15. And I thought, well, my goodness, you, you know them and drove them and everything. Why are you asking me to take them? But it was because he couldn't stand seeing them go. Along with documenting history, Irene preserved it. She organized the Faith Area Historical Society and was instrumental in saving historical buildings like Flannery's 1911 Beer and Ice House and the Stensland House, which she helped turn into the Stensland Museum. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde. You can find and share this full Dakota Life episode on our website, sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. South Dakota has a world champion, and this time it's in roller derby. Delaney Gramlich is a rising senior at Lincoln High School in Sioux Falls. She traveled all over the country this summer playing with her team of roller derby athletes, and she played with Team USA at the Junior Roller Derby World Cup in France, where the Americans took home the top prize. Her roller derby name is Death Ray. More on that in a minute. I spoke with Delaney Gramlick yesterday via Zoom and asked her how she got into the sport. So my friend Leah Bosler was in it and our parents worked together. So we were at a, a workplace function and I was in fourth grade and she told me that I should join roller derby and I was in fourth grade. So I had nothing else going on. So I said, <laughs> okay, I'll do that. And I did and I still love it and I've played ever since. Did you say what's that or did you like, what did you think it was in fourth grade? Oh, I had no idea. I just knew that Leah was cool and she was telling me I should join. So I was like, it must be pretty cool. Um, and I don't think I knew what it was until the first practice. So um, <laughs> I, I just took a leap of faith, I guess. Okay, so tell people what it is. Then. It's a team sport mm -hmm. um, and it's played on skates, obviously. It's very, it's very physical. It's a contact sport. Um, there's a jammer and there's blockers. And so per every jam, there's four blockers out and one jammer. And the jammer's objective is to get through the blockers. And the blockers are obviously 
trying to stop the jammer. That's pretty much it. There's obviously a lot of rules, but that's the objective. And I told you're not a naturally aggressive person, or are you? Because you're a blocker and you're pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I don't think I'm naturally aggressive. Um, I've told on the track I am, but I people that like know me outside of roller derby and don't know me like to like be from roller derby before I tell them are always like pretty surprised. So I don't think I'm naturally aggressive, but maybe on the track. <laughs> so that's what it looks like to fans. But then what makes a good blocker? Um, I think that a good blocker is someone who's really smart and has uh, like in roller derby and has good instincts, knows how to make decisions. Um, but it's also very physical. You need to have good endurance and be strong enough to take hits. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. But I, I think the main thing is knowing how to help your team, knowing how to make decisions and knowing how to lead. How, how important is trust in the team to know where people are going to be without, you know, what kind of communication do you have or is it all just uh, trusting the team? Yeah, trust is super important. It's, like I said, a very physical sport, a very teamwork heavy sport. So it's very important to trust your team and communication is a huge part of it. We are always talking on the track. We have names for plays and signals for things that are going on so that's important too but when i was playing with the usa team obviously we we're all from different teams different places so there was like almost a lingual barrier like we obviously all spoke english but it was kind of like relearning how to speak to each other because one move i called one thing and then people from florida obviously had a completely different name for it so i was kind of figuring out what worked for us and maybe just going back to preschool explaining out like what we're talking about instead of just saying one word um so that was a completely different thing to relearn is just how to communicate but it's super important yeah how did you get called up to that team how did that the transition work for you um so there were tryouts um they held i think six different tryouts and i tried out um last summer at nationals because my team made it to nationals so they had a tryout there and i i tried out really not expecting much um, but I just thought it was kind of fun. It was a good experience. And then I found out in November that I made it. Tell me about your name and how those names are chosen. Yeah, so I was in fourth grade when I picked my name. I'm not sure if I would pick the same name today, but my middle name is Ray. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I thought death Ray, that that's, that's sick. That's tough. Um, so I, I chose death Ray. It's, I mean, compared to some of the other names I've seen, it's okay. Like, I i won't die of embarrassment, but most people just call me Delaney. And then for other skaters, it's usually some sort of tie to your, like, own name. Um, and then just some sort of, like, funky, like, tough twist on it or whatever. Some people do, like, historical references or pop culture references. It really just depends on the skater and what their passions are outside of the track. It's not an Olympic sport yet, but it could be. Tell me a little bit about roller derby as an athletic endeavor, as a sport for, for fans, for a business. What's the future of roller derby? So I've been saying this for forever. I, had, I need to start working super hard to get roller derby in the Olympics because right now it's just, it's not a super known sport. It's not very accessible. There aren't teams close by. So like my team, for instance, we're in Sioux Falls and the closest team we have is in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is a three and a half hour drive, which just isn't very easy to set up games and to have regular practice against other people and competition. So it's really difficult to run a team when there isn't anyone near you and when it's just not known. And it's 
a super hard sport to start playing because it's like soccer is obviously complex, but it's like you don't need to possess like a super like specific skill. Roller derby is exclusively on roller skates. So it's like that is a super scary thing to go into. It's difficult to get skaters and it's difficult to get teams to play against. It needs to be more known though, because it's so fun and the community is so amazing. They are the most amazing people I know in my life. They're all so kind and talented and fun, um, but it's just unfortunately not super accessible right now. What has it done for you academically or socially? Like how has it impacted your life? Yeah, so socially, I would say anytime, I'm usually like pretty like, I don't like to talk about myself a ton, so I don't tell people that I play roller derby or whatever, but obviously people know because my friends will tell them or whatever. And people's first response is always, that is so cool. Or I watched Whip It in the 80s, or I used to be so obsessed with skating when I was a kid. Like people always think it's super cool and have so many questions about it because they just don't know about it. Um, So it's always a super good conversation starter and people automatically think I'm cool, which is a bonus, but. (laughs) Well, you just won the Junior Roller Derby World Cup. So the cat's out of the bag that you're a roller derby (laughs) athlete. Well, tell me about the, um, the competition itself, the finals, your trip to Europe. How did that all unfold for you? Uh, the trip to Europe was a blast. Um, I We went so many places and my entire family was there. So there were 17 of us. So that was super cool by itself. And then the actual tournament was insane. It was unlike anything I've ever done. Um, not only the people we played against, but like my own team, because I was meeting a lot of them there for the first time. And it was just such a surreal experience to be playing with 19 other skaters who were perfect. They were phenomenal at roller derby this is their life and they have been doing it for years and so they just are instinctual and breathe roller derby know how to do it like in their bones it was just an insane experience to be able to trust everyone on the track with everything and then also to be playing other teams from different countries that were phenomenal and like seeing things that i've never even seen like possible in roller derby and see how other people do it it was just phenomenal and everyone was super nice and humble it was it was a fin- it was a, an amazing experience team usa won top honors at the junior roller derby world cup in france this july that was delaney gramlick of sioux falls You're listening to In The Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. If you had a nurse or a third party providing in-home care to you, you would definitely pay them for their services. But what if the person spending hours at your home and providing the care you need is a family member? Well, it gets a little murkier there. Rapid City Wealth Advisor Rick Kaler of the Kaler Financial Group is here to dive into the question of to pay or not to pay, and he is with me today on the phone. Hey, Rick, welcome back. Hi, Lori. Murky is uh, an understatement. <laughs> this is an incredibly <laughs> emotional. I will tell you. I will tell you this as I mentioned to people that this was the topic. The the physical reaction just showed how emotional it was for people. And in general, the response I was getting was, I would never ask my parents to pay me to take care of them. That's just my responsibility as a child. So here we go. The big emotions come up already. Where do you want to begin? 
Well, let's begin with the logical, maybe. Okay. And that's that's the easy part. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, more and more, uh, of course, there's more and more seniors as the baby boomers move through. And it's very normal to want to remain independent. And it's easier today to remain independent. And usually when we think about independent uh, living, we think about, I want to stay in my own house. And there's more and more services that are arising to help people stay in their own home. There are actually even long-term care policies that will pay uh, in-home providers. So it's it's becoming um, more and more uh, popular in that it's more and more available and affordable. So <laughs> when I say affordable, it may not right. be that affordable. Right, yeah. Um, it's $35 an hour typically just for somebody to come in and maybe make meals, check on you, maybe uh, help with meds, uh, just light housekeeping chores. And then you can get up to, I think there's somebody in our area that charges 165 an hour to go with you to medical appointments and really be an advocate who's really overseeing uh, your your health care. Yeah. So... That's that can be that can be easy. It still can be incredibly hard to ask for help and to acknowledge that I need this help. And I see that quite a, uh, more often than I see people willingly asking or accepting or paying for help. Yeah. So the the issue is okay when you have family members giving that help. What what to do then? And if you look at it just logical, uh, typically you can pay a family member half of what you would pay a professional because there's lots of overhead, uh, a lot of other costs involved in that. So uh, if, if you can have a family member come in, pay them half of what you would pay for uh, commercial support, that's a win for the uh, the parent or the senior, it's a win for the family member because, and I, th- I, I think we've talked about this. I know I've read a, written about the huge cost to yeah. family caregivers. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I think the average cost in some of the surveys is like it costs two, three, four hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. for a family member to care for somebody over a long period of time. And it affects their family life, it affects their job, and if they can be compensated for that, it's just a win-win for everybody. And plus, the family member is going to know more about you. You know, in a way, if the family member is competent, it's it's a huge win Mm -hmm. for the senior. All right. So there's the lovely logic that we've laid out. We're done. Thank you. Have a nice day because now all your problems are solved. Um, but there are emotional complexities to this. I like what you said. I just want to recap that. That first, you know, somebody has to accept it, acknowledge that they need help. And sometimes when the family members are helping, it doesn't feel like they're helping. So you're not acknowledging that you're actually getting help. Then you have to be able to afford it. And then 
the resources have to exist. Like there has to be someone in your community who can provide that help. So family are often on the front lines of this for any of those reasons. Either your loved one can't afford the price of the service, the service doesn't exist in your community, or they're just not quite getting that they're actually in need of this help. So I'm going to say the obvious. My mom didn't get paid to do my laundry when I was a little kid. Don't I owe her? To show up and do her laundry cost-free as she ages? Well, now that's an idea I haven't thought of. I'm going to have to noodle on that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's some compensation here. And that's the way a lot of people approach it is exactly that. The, The issue is how is this affecting the child's family life, and work life and emotional life. And also another thing that is very common is oftentimes it's one child. Siblings to worry about. Mm -hmm. The child lives in the town with the parents that will uh, do the heavy lifting and taking care of that parent. And sometimes there can be some resentment, uh, especially when it comes to inheritance time, that you have one uh, sibling who really spent, I mean, it is easy to spend 20 hours to even 40 hours a week taking care of um, adult parents. So how is that compensated? Both... Uh, yeah, especially for the child. I good grief! I <laughs> spent the last four years of my life taking care of them, right? And it it often isn't articulated because I shouldn't say this. I should be to uh, be with my parents during that time, and all that. I mean, that can be true, but there can be this niggling resentment that comes up to. Everybody was treated fairly, and yet there's some that really, really were there when the parents needed it, and usually to their financial cost. Yeah. So paying a family member evens the playing field because they can be compensated fairly for what they were given. That's already come out of the estate, and now it can be split without resentment because that one child, uh, their contributions have been acknowledged. Yeah. All right. I think it's a wonderful, and I'm still in the logic, of course. Yeah, but no, there's also in the logic side, because I think the main thing is, you know, it is important to have open and honest conversations, and that is hard in, in families, and in some families it's harder than others. Let's be real about this. But you also mentioned in your column the legal aspects so if you're paying a family member to come and do certain things, are they paying taxes? Who do they, what do they need to do to sort of consider the exchange of money then? Yeah, we can, we, now we start getting murky because uh, there, there are legal uh, issues that need to be considered. Uh, paying Social Security, is the uh, child going to be an independent contractor or an employee? Um, should the child actually form their own LLC to um, be given the, the uh, care? There's a lot of legal aspects that need
need to be considered because there is, any way you cut it, there's taxes and Social Security that need needs to be paid on those amounts, either by the child or by the parents. So that's where it can get a little tricky. Uh, that's nothing that can't be overcome because still we're in the we're in the logical camp. Right. But I think that the whole point of this, and then you also mentioned, you know, issues of negligence or elder abuse or how to deal with that. There's a lot to think about. Listeners know this already. They know it's complicated because they're living through it. Um, usually you're living through it by the time you start thinking about it. But um, I'll just direct people to that column. And because it does step-by-step sort of help walk you through some of the things that you need to consider, and it might provide a nice starting point for siblings or parents and their adult children to start having those conversations, maybe before it's an emergency or before it is urgent. Should we leave it there? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. We could, we, this is a book. This is a book. Financial therapist Rick <laughs> Kaler. It's your next book. I know I like coupleship a lot. So this is the next one. Unfinished business, you can call it. As um, <laughs> the family sort of sorts out how they're going to handle all these things. Uh, we really appreciate your time, Rick. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Take care. Let's take a moment now to remember the humble bicycle and how it has changed our lives. A love of cycling in the Pier Fort Pier area led to the creation of the Oahe Wheelmen. The group then hand-built a trail out of the tough central South Dakota prairie. SDPB's Justin Kohler talked with Oahe Wheelmen President Mike Mueller and Trails Director Uriah Stieber about the club. Here, they talk about their early bike memories and how grown-ups can capture the magic and freedom of exploring the cities, small towns, back roads, and landscapes of South Dakota on two wheels. You'll hear Uriah's voice first today, and then Mike's. Even if you're a little kid, you remember, you know, seeing bikes in the front yard. I know that's not really the calling card anymore, but previous generation might say that was how you found out where everybody was, is where the bikes were. I don't remember a time when I didn't have a bike. I've seen the pictures of me as a toddler with one of those little trikes with training wheels. I remember the banana seat with the chopper handlebars that I had next. And from there I got a Huffy Bandit was this new model that came out. And then the Schwinn 10-speed that I got once I got to middle school, junior high age. I've always been riding a bike, and it was a way to get around, it was a way to go see your friends, it was a way to adventure when you were a kid, and I, that's never left me. You know, at our core, it's it's the explorer in all of us. And like, you can go hike for sure and find out an, about a new place. But what you can hike in an hour, you can triple on a bike. And so if you want to find out, you know, what's around, you get on a bike and you, you go figure it out. So yeah, adventures built into the bicycle, you know, that was just part of what it is. The best bike is the one that you have and that you will ride. And you don't need all the rest of the gadgets and the gizmos. Just jump on the bike and ride. Having an open mind to things and, you know, just trying new experiences in life. Obviously, that's adventure through and through. Is It's constantly a new experience and you never know what it's going to be. You know, and that definitely comes with riding your bike. I mean, for sure, because it's, it's, it's the first way. When we talk about kids riding your bike, that was how you explored. Like, that was your freedom. 
Some of the funnest rides are ones where you're not going fast or trying to accomplish anything. You just kind of venture around and you see corners of the community you would have never seen before. Whatever it is that's your motivating factor, whether you want to get healthier or a new hobby, I mean, do it. Just do it. At the end of the day, it's probably the best thing that you can start doing. Don't let it hang in your garage from here on out. Go around the block with it. Take it for ice cream and just and ride it because there's joy to be had there. If you'd like to see the full feature about the Oahe Wheelman, head online sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. More in the moment is up next. We'll preview Prairie Songs, Humbletown, and Cloverfold are in the house. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, next week, Friends of SDPB will host two nights of music, first East River and then West River. Prairie Songs is happening Friday, August 18th at the Great Plains Zoo in Sioux Falls, and then on Saturday, August 19th at the Custer Beacon in Custer. The event features two fan-favorite South Dakota bands, and they're all gathered around microphones in different parts of the state. <laughs> so out west in STPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio, we have Humbletown, a folk bluegrass band featuring the musical talents of Morgan Carnes and Dylan Lewis. Morgan, hey, how's it going? Doing great. How are you? Excellent. Dylan, hi. Hi, how's it going, Lori? Great. Cloverfold is here with me. Say hi, everybody. Hey, hi. guys. <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right, we're going to mute Cloverfold, and they're going to tune in and listen to Humbletown uh, now that we all know we're kind of in the same, uh, it's not a virtual space, it's a, we're in the same radio space. Here we go. What's new uh, with the band, Morgan? How's the summer going? Well, we um, recently got off a 46-day tour with our two kids, Oh, um, which was <laughs> quite the adventure, and soon after going, we've been playing festivals every weekend. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been quite the summer for us. That's a family for, that's like a dream. It's so idyllic in my mind. That's like an Instagram dream, but in reality, it's a logistical, um, circus probably. <laughs> it wasn't quite as bad as I thought it would be. Okay. And, you know, we get to look back at all the great moments. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. And, and you guys played with uh, Cloverfold recently? Or well, we played with Travis, Travis. of okay. Cloverfold, which yep. was awesome. We got to have him play at Folk Fest with us. How often is that, that you are sort of mixing up band members with different bands, different people, stepping in, stepping out? What's the, 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 the sort of uh, serendipity of that in the scene right now? Often for us, um, we play with all different band members. We toured with our wonderful friend James Schrag from New York. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's just fantastic. And we play with Ben LeMay. We're in Rapid City. And we play with um, uh, 
Tom Schaefer when we're in Minnesota. So we just <laughs> really, and this woman we met on tour. Um, Evie. Evie, yeah, she joined mm. us in North Dakota, so we really mix it up. Nice. All right, you're going to play for us live today. What are you going to set up for us here, and then we'll get started. So this is my most recent song. It's called The River Song. I wrote um, the chorus 12 years ago and finished it up at the beginning of our tour. It's about the Missouri River and camping in the summertime. All right, the band Humboldtown.
downstream onto another time. Tell me bedtime stories from your northern streams. And in the morning I'll tell you my river dreams. Wow. Thank you so much. That is live music from Humbletown coming at you from our SDPB studios in the Black Hills. Morgan and Dylan. Morgan, that was worth the wait if that took uh, 12 years <laughs> to fully <laughs> find the you. song. Dylan, what is it like to watch their mind work as, and you work together, of course, but to sort of watch Morgan, you know, tease something out, go back, redo it. Tell me a little bit about that creative process and creative connection. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I'm a bit jealous of their songwriting skills. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll um, you know, pump out, say, five songs in a week where it'll take me two or three months to write one song. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, Morgan's a, a very sort of practical person, I, I feel like, in their songwriting, and I'll just kind of get out a notebook, and as soon as I came up with the idea and uh, just start it and finish it in, you know, three or four hours. With yeah. the exception of this one, with the whole twelve-year <laughs> wait, but <laughs> it's not what, usually that way. Yeah. What, what's that Todd Snyder song where he talks about like a song that he just never got, and then he, you know, just gave up on it, and then he sings a song about giving up on the song, and the, I, I can't remember the title of it. But uh, Morgan, as a songwriter, is that just a professionalism? Is that there's so much to you know to get out that you just have to you write it down all the time? Tell me what it's like for you. I have a lot of dry spells. And then I get inspiration and I sit down and sometimes I have like three in a row and maybe I'll keep one, maybe I'll keep none of them. Yeah. Um, obviously our life is pretty busy with the kids. So um, yeah, I never know when I'll have time or inspiration, but I try. Um, sometimes I just try it just for the exercise, you know? All right. Well, with all due respect to your wonderful children, we sort of need their parents to Because what a singular delight <laughs> for me to sort of listen to that as a South Dakotan and know that that song speaks so clearly of something that means something to me personally. So yeah, keep keep making that balance. It's totally worth it. You want to do one more? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'm going to sing a song about my hometown of Leeds, South Dakota, nice. and about the giant hole that is called the Open Cut. Here we go. Um, <laughs> all right.
shines in that hole so deep And the rumble it wakes me at night while I sleep And the crater they cut left a scar that won't heal And a chill in the air only a miner can feel And a chill in the air only a miner can Live music this Friday from Humbletown, um, from our Rapid City studios there. Morgan and Dylan are part of our upcoming Prairie Songs concerts here on the East River and West River, playing with Cloverfold. You guys, tremendous work. Thank you so much for being here with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to kick it to Cloverfold now with a little recording from their latest performance at the Levitt at the Falls. Take a listen. I could just listen to that all <laughs> day. Uh, Travis Jameson, Aaron Castle are in the studio. This is a six-piece band and six people with an upright bass and a, a million other instruments don't quite fit in our studio. So we pulled some <laughs> Levitt uh, audio, but Aaron and Travis are here to talk to us a little bit. Travis, welcome. We've not met. I mean, I, kn- I feel like I know you because <laughs> right. I've seen you perform. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. And Aaron, I love you so much that... Bless your heart. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's a pleasure to be here once once again with and you. You guys are in the studio recording uh, an album now, so Correct. there's yep. an EP with a Love It performance that is available online. We'll put some links up. But you're also how's the studio work going? Oh, pretty well, I would yeah. say. I mean, it's uh, getting everyone's schedules together to be able to record it is kind of been one of our hurdles, but mm-hmm. we're we're getting it. We're slow and steady. How did this band come together? This particular grouping. Well, uh, basically, we had two previous bands that we were working out of, and we had people leave those bands, and so we took who was left and combined them into this band. You folded them together. Right, exactly. (laughs) And what um, is your creative process? Because I know we're going to have a song here at the end of the show that Aaron wrote. I believe that you wrote that last piece that we heard. What was it called? Turned. Turned. Okay. You know, I love the, oh, oh Lord, this world, that line. (laughs) It's one of my favorites. All right. It just hits you at the right spot when you're listening to it live. It just does something. It nice. resonates at that point. 
Well, thanks. I mean, my, my process is kind of all over the place. I don't have one single way I do it. Some songs start as a melody line I hum to myself. Some start as a series of words that I like, ooh, I really like that phrase. I need to work that in. So I'm all over the place, sometimes on guitar, sometimes on my bass itself, I'll start. Yeah. So, yeah, when it comes to my stuff, it's kind of all over the place. And then I get it, I don't know, 90% done. And that's when these guys come and sprinkle their magic on it. <laughs> <laughs> that must be fun to hear. Oh, yeah. Do you hear it in your head before you? A, a lot of them. Yeah. And they'll surprise me for sure sometimes. But, like, you know, I'll go in with, like, I'm really hearing, you know, the Mando take the lead at this part or whatever. Okay. And then they kind of give it their flair on the idea I had. So it's great when they start coming together. And it's like, that is, it worked. Yeah. You yeah. know. What is this music, this tradition of music? Is it folk music? Is it Americana? Does it matter, Aaron? Like, what do you call it? Well, I might let Travis uh, alliterate on this a little bit, but, um, you know, we, a lot of people assume that we're a folk uh, outfit based on the instruments that we play. And in some ways we are. Um, but, Travis, do you want to lead that part? Well, there's, there's just so many influences from all yeah. kind of over the place. So we do present as essentially an Americana string band mm -hmm. kind of feel, but there's so many elements I, I feel of rock and bluegrass and just mm -hmm. folk all over the place that we combine into being one thing. So, Well, we often will ask uh, the question to someone that's asking oh. us, you know, uh, do you know who Bill Monroe is? Okay. And if the answer is yes we'll say, well, we're kind of an Americana folk outfit. Uh, if it's no, we'll just say it's folk because it's easier yeah, or we're bluegrass. to understand. Or bluegrass. You'll, you'll, you'll understand. If you don't know Bill Monroe is, we're bluegrass. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just music. Are there themes that you return to, Aaron, again and again that you, that oh, you yeah. like to circle back on and say there's something else there for me to explore as an artist? Absolutely. You know, um, being able to uh, songwrite with Travis um, and, and the rest of them, um, has been so, so helpful as a person that isn't as um, well-versed in the instrument of, you know, playing something to tell you this is the key that it's in, this is whatever. I can get along and I can write a melody, um, but as far as, like, the content of the material is is often, um, you know, a memory or um, something that I'm fleshing out, whether it's uh, a dream that I had or an experience now with my two children, mm -hmm. you know, and I've been playing music with Travis specifically for about 20 years. So wow. those those songs um, have changed um, just in, in where they come from based on the changes that I've, I've gone through in my family and my life. That's where the magic comes in, too, that 20 years and that lived right. experience and that experience with each other and the other group on the stage, other members on the stage. Okay. Right. I could talk to you all day, but I have to <laughs> tell people this. Yes. And that is the um, SDPB Friends are hosting uh, Prairie Songs, and you can see it in two places. You can see it at the Custer Beacon on Saturday, August 19th, before that, on Friday, August 18th, we're at the Great Plains Zoo in Sioux Falls. SDPB.org slash tickets is where you go. You're also playing Aberdeen yes, with another Prairie song. So all that information is up on our website, but SDPB.org slash tickets is where you need to find things out. Um, Cloverfold, we'll close the show with you. Thanks for being here. Thank you Thanks so for much having for having us. us. And thank you for listening. Now